This week how Haunter turns 50. So to commemorate this milestone, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm recording this from my hotel room in England's second city, and I'm about to head out and take you along on a tour through the city and tell you of the scariest, darkest, bloodiest places to be found here. Tonight, join me for a ghost walk through haunted Birmingham. Welcome to episode 50 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week you join me live from the West Midlands and we ask, just how haunted is Birmingham? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. You join me in Birmingham, England on a lovely summer's evening. I'm actually sat in the grounds of Birmingham Cathedral at the moment. Looking at the time, it's just after 8.30 at night. So it's still light and there's barely a cloud in the sky. The end of summer isn't too far away though, as September's just around the corner and there's a definite chill on the breeze. Birmingham is a city renowned for its industrial spirit and cultural diversity. It has a rich and vibrant history that has shaped its identity. From humble beginnings as a medieval market town to its pivotal role in the industrial revolution and beyond, Birmingham's history is testament to its resilience, innovation and social progress. Birmingham's history can be traced back to its origins as a small Anglo-Saxon settlement during the early medieval period. Founded in the 7th century, the town emerged as a bustling market centre due to its convenient location at the crossing of important trade routes. By the 12th century, it had gained a royal charter, solidifying its position as a thriving market town 
and a hub for commerce. The Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries propelled Birmingham into an era of unprecedented growth and prosperity. The city became an industrial powerhouse, renowned for its innovations in manufacturing metalworking. Birmingham's skilled craftsmen and visionary entrepreneurs spearheaded advancements in industries such as iron, steel and textiles, revolutionising production methods and driving economic expansion. The city's reputation for quality craftsmanship earned it the nickname the Workshop of the World. Birmingham's history is not solely defined by its industrial achievements. The city has been a hotbed of social progress and cultural significance. In the late 18th century, the Lunar Society, a group of prominent intellectuals and scientists, convened in Birmingham, fostering intellectual exchanges and groundbreaking discoveries. The city also played a pivotal role in the abolitionist movement, with figures such as William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson advocating for the end of the slave trade. Birmingham's commitment to education and culture is exemplified by institutions like the University of Birmingham, which was founded in 1900, and the Birmingham Repertory Theatre, renowned for its influential contributions to British theatre. In the 20th century, Birmingham faced a significant challenge as it grappled with the decline of traditional industries and the impact of World War II. However, the city underwent a process of urban redevelopment and transformation. The iconic Bullring shopping centre constructed in the 1960s symbolised Birmingham's commitment to consumerism. In recent years, the city has experienced a resurgence, with extensive regeneration projects, including the development of the canal side area, the construction of the futuristic library of Birmingham, and the transformation of the former industrial quarters into vibrant cultural and residential spaces. The history of Birmingham, England is a captivating tale of growth, innovation and resilience. From its modest beginnings as a medieval market town, to its pivotal role in the Industrial Revolution and its modern day reinvention, Birmingham has continuously adapted and thrived. The city's industrial achievements, social progress and cultural contributions have shaped its character and left an indelible mark on British history. Birmingham's past provides a firm foundation for its ongoing journey as a dynamic and thriving metropolis. But this city renowned for its vibrant culture and industrial achievements carries within its history a dark and haunting past. Behind its bustling streets and iconic landmarks lies a hidden tapestry of dark episodes that has shaped the city's identity. From its involvement in the slave trade and the brutalities of the Industrial Revolution to the devastating impacts of World War II. Birmingham's history reveals the shadows that have left a lasting impact on its narrative. Birmingham's dark history is intrinsically entwined with its role in the transatlantic slave trade. Although not a major port city, Birmingham played a significant part in the economic machinery that perpetuated the enslavement of African people. The city's industries manufactured goods used in the trade, such as iron chains and shackles. Its wealthy merchants and manufacturers profited from this inhumane system. The scars of this complicity can be seen today in the city's architecture and institutions, serving as a stark reminder of its dark past. The Industrial Revolution brought about immense progress and prosperity in Birmingham, but also cast a dark shadow over the working class. The city's rapid industrialization led to overcrowding and insanitary living conditions for the working poor. Child labor was prevalent, with young children toiling in factories under hazardous conditions. Workers faced long hours, meagre wages and limited access to education and health care. The stark divide between the wealthy industrialists and the impoverished working class deepened, leading to social inequalities and unrest. 
Birmingham suffered greatly during World War II, becoming a target for enemy bombing raids. The city's strategic importance as an industrial centre made it a prime target for German Luftwaffe attacks. The devastating blitz of 1940-1943 caused significant destruction, resulting in the loss of many, many lives here and the devastation of entire sections of the city. The scars of the bombing can still be seen today in the city's architecture, particularly in areas such as the Jewellery Quarter. The war inflicted immense pain and hardship on the people of Birmingham, leaving behind a dark chapter in its history. Birmingham was not immune to the struggles for civil rights that swept through the world in the 20th century. The city witnessed racial tensions and discrimination against minority communities, particularly during the post-war period of immigration. Racially motivated violence and systemic racism was prevalent, culminating in events such as the 1963 Birmingham campaign in the United Kingdom, which sought to address issues of racial segregation and inequality. The fight for civil rights in Birmingham mirrored the broader struggle for equality in the country and serves as a reminder for the ongoing challenges faced by marginalised communities. The dark history of Birmingham reveals a complex and layered narrative of complicity, social inequalities, wartime devastation and struggles for civil rights. Acknowledging the past allows for a more comprehensive understanding of the city's journey towards a better future. Tonight I will walk the streets of this city and you will come along with me as we seek out the ghosts of Birmingham. You now find me on the first stop on our tour, Birmingham New Street Station. Birmingham New Street first opened its doors in 1854 as a replacement for a number of smaller rail stations on the outskirts of the city centre which had become inadequate due to the city's rapid growth. The station was built by the London and North Western Railway between 1846 and 1854 on the site of several streets in a marshy area known as the Froggery and was named Birmingham New Street after the street of the same name which runs parallel to the station. When it opened it had the largest single span arch roof in the world. Over the years the station underwent several expansions and renovations to accommodate the increasing demand for rail travel. The most significant transformation came between 1964 and 1966, when the station was completely rebuilt and expanded, resulting in a bold and modernistic architectural design that attracted both praise and criticism. One of the main issues people had was that passenger numbers were more than double what the station had been rebuilt to accommodate. The recent £550 million redevelopment project completed in 2015 further enhanced the station's capacity, amenities and made rail travel in and out of Birmingham a more pleasant experience. Birmingham New Street Station stands out for its architectural prowess. The 1960s reconstruction led by architect Kenneth J. Davies introduced a radical design featuring a concrete facade, a sweeping concourse and distinctive grid-like concrete panels. While controversial at the time, the bold and futuristic aesthetics of the station have now become iconic. The recent renovation known as the Gateway Plus project preserved and revitalised these architectural features while introducing modern elements such as a light-filled atrium and stunning stainless steel facade that reflects the surrounding cityscape. New Street, as you can hear in the background, is the fifth busiest railway station in the UK and the busiest outside of London. Birmingham New Street is not just a transportation hub but a symbol of Birmingham's ongoing transformation and commitment to connectivity. And of course, it's incredibly haunted. Platform 4 was built in 1848 and sits on top of a demolished Jewish cemetery that was dug up with no respect whatsoever for those buried there, supposedly resting in peace. 
Ever since, this particular platform has had a reputation of being different to the other platforms. Somehow more eerie, unsettling, and after dark, in those quieter hours, commuters waiting for the last train have found themselves questioning whether they have just glimpsed a dark figure moving swiftly out of the corner of their eye. When they turn to look, there's nothing there. The ghosts of these restless souls forever wander the platform, rubbing shoulders with the living rushing around coming and going on the many trains in and out of the city daily. They're unable to find peace, having been so unceremoniously removed from their graves. A terrible accident occurred on Platform 4 on the 26th of November 1921. The Ministry of Transport report for the incident reads, The 210 Express train, Bristol to Sheffield, entering the station by number 4 platform line, and struck the rear of the 4.12pm local train, Birmingham to Derby, which was standing at the same platform. I regret to inform that three persons were killed and 24 injured. Those who lost their lives that day remain here, with psychics to the station claiming to make contact with the three victims of the accident. There have been reports of those standing on Platform 4 or sitting on board a train stationed at the platform, suddenly having an overwhelming feeling that they're about to crash, being beside themselves, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's as if they're picking up on how those involved in the accident a little over a hundred years ago would have felt. The best known and most frequently encountered phantom on Platform 4 is Walter Hartles. Walter was a 68-year-old engine driver who had split from his wife and found it too difficult to bear. One day in 1936, he took a seat in the waiting room on Platform 4, calmly produced a handgun, held it to his chest and pulled the trigger. He was found in a pool of blood on the floor with a gun at his feet. An inquest delivered a verdict of suicide while of an unsound mind, and a newspaper article at the time said he had been separated from his wife for some time. He is seen today, sitting patiently in the waiting room before vanishing. In total, it's written that four suicides occurred right here at this train station on Platform 4. And another man who died here and is still seen today is Claude. It's claimed he poisoned himself. He is dressed in Victorian dress, complete with a top hat. So definitely stands out should you cross his path. I'm now on Station Street outside the Alexandra Theatre which has got big posters all over and a big lit-up display on the front advertising Pretty Woman the Musical. It was officially opened on the 27th of May 1901. It was designed by Owen Williams, a renowned architect, in the Victorian and Edwardian style. It cost £10,000 to build. It initially opened as a Lyceum Theatre, but it struggled, and it was sold only a year after to Lester Collingwood for £4,450, and he renamed it the Alexandra Theatre, named for Queen Alexandra, the wife of King Edward VII. It reopened on the 22nd of December 1902 with a performance of The Fatal Wedding. Over the years, it has undergone several renovations and modernisations to keep up with the changing times and demands of the audience. Throughout its history, the Alexandra Theatre has hosted a diverse range of performances, including music hall acts, drama, ballet, opera and musicals. Many acclaimed actors, singers and dancers have graced its stage, making it a popular destination for both local and international artists. The theatre has also witnessed world premieres of various productions, further cementing its reputation as a cultural hub. During World War II, the Alexandra Theatre served as an important venue for morale boost and entertainment for the armed forces. It continued to operate despite the challenges of wartime, showcasing the resilience and determination of the people of Birmingham.
In recent years, the Alexandra Theatre, known as the Alex to Logos, has undergone extensive refurbishments to enhance its facilities and restore its historic charm. The seating capacity has been increased and modern amenities have been added to ensure a comfortable and immersive experience for the audience. Today continues to showcase a diverse array of performances, ranging from classic plays to contemporary musicals, such as the forthcoming Pretty Woman musical, which it says on the poster is coming between the 17th and 28th of October, if anybody fancies catching that. It attracts theatre enthusiasts from all walks of life. The Alexandra Theatre stands as a testament to the enduring power of performance arts and the importance of preserving cultural heritage. Its rich history and ongoing contribution to the arts in Birmingham make it an integral part of the city's identity, whether it's a captivating drama, a lively music or a thought-provoking ballet. And of course, it's got its ghosts. There are reportedly five ghosts haunting the Alexandra Theatre. A stage manager believed to be called Dick, he was heard jangling his keys and whistling a cheery tune when the theatre is empty and no one is around. A mysterious grey lady is seen backstage. She was first reported in 1987. Her identity is unknown, but it's suggested that she may be the spirit of Grace Ann Housley, who was known as Gracie, and who died on stage at the theatre on the 5th of February 1902 at the age of just 22. Newspaper reports of the time say she collapsed during the rendition of the song Goodbye Dolly Grey. A former wardrobe master who died whilst in the building is seen and heard in the dressing rooms. He's felt tugging on clothes and costumes. And a man dressed in military clothes wearing a top hat is seen throughout the building. But the most famous ghost is former stage and cinema tycoon Leon Salberg, who owned the theatre from 1911. He was known nationally as the Pantomime King and he died right here in the theatre when he suffered a heart attack and died in his office on September the 29th, 1937. He is seen today wandering the building that he loved so much in life. Strange electrical phenomena happens in all areas of the theatre, with power draining from electrical devices in an instant, and lights flickering on and off, which seem to indicate the presence of one of the theatre's cast of spectral characters. Knocking and tapping noises are heard, with the source not being able to be located, and doors open and slam closed all on their own. Staff and visitors have experienced being prodded by an unseen presence while sitting in the auditorium. I'm now stood outside a Baskerville house in Centenary Square. The house is named for the renowned English printer and typeface designer John Baskerville, who built a grand mansion on this spot in 1766. He was a prominent figure in the printing industry, and his most famous typeface, Baskerville, is still widely used today. He came to Birmingham in 1725, and in 1766, Baskerville built an elegant Georgian mansion here. After Baskerville's death in 1775, the mansion went through several owners and various uses, including a hotel, a private residence and as an office space. In the early 20th century, Birmingham was experiencing a period of economic growth and urban development. The city's bustling business community required a modern and spacious office building to accommodate its expanding needs. In 1736, the Birmingham Civic Society launched a competition to design a new municipal building on the site of Baskerville's former mansion, which was now no longer standing. The winning design was submitted by T. Cecil Howitt, a renowned architect who envisaged a grand building that combined elements of both classical and art deco styles. Construction work began in 1938, but due to the outbreak of World War II, the project was put on hold. It wasn't until 1940 that construction resumed, and Baskerville House was finally completed in 1943. It stood as a symbol of resilience and determination during the war years, 
Its impressive facade, with its grand entrance and imposing columns, became an iconic site in Birmingham. The building served as the headquarters of the Birmingham City Council for several decades and housed various administrative departments. Over time, the city's needs changed and the council relocated to a new building in 1998. Baskerville House underwent a major refurbishment and was transformed into a modern office space suitable for commercial use. Today the building is home to several businesses and organisations, serving as a hub for innovation, collaboration and entrepreneurship. Baskerville House is known throughout Birmingham for its rumoured ghosts. Over the years there have been numerous reports of ghostly encounters and eerie experiences within the walls of the current building. One of the most famous ghost stories associated with Baskerville House revolves around the spirit of its namesake, John Baskerville. Legend has it that his restless soul lingers within the building that he didn't know in life, but he lived and died in the building that stood on this site previously. Witnesses claim to have seen a shadowy figure resembling Baskerville roaming the corridors or glimpsed his ghostly presence near the grand entrance. Some have even reported hearing the sound of a printing press emanating from empty rooms, as if the spirit of Baskerville is eternally at work. When you consider what happened to John Baskerville remains following his death almost 250 years ago, it's hardly surprising that he's not been able to find peace. He made plans for his death and he requested that his body be placed into a mill which he'd had turned into a vault. In 1821 a canal was built through the site and his body, which was described as incredibly well preserved, was removed and placed on display by the landowner. Baskerville's family and friends arranged to have it moved to the Crypt of Christchurch in Victoria Square. Christchurch was demolished in 1899, so his remains were then moved again, along with other bodies from the crypt. He was removed to consecrate the catacombs at War Stone Lane Cemetery. In 1963, a petition was presented at Birmingham City Council requesting that it be reburied in unconsecrated ground, which was according to his wishes. Employees and visitors have reported strange occurrences throughout the building. Some have described feeling an inexplicable sense of being watched, experiencing sudden cold drafts, or hearing disembodied footsteps echoing in empty corridors. Unexplained noises, such as doors creaking open and closed on their own, have been reported, leaving people perplexed and unsettled. The focal point of the paranormal occurrences at Baskerville House appears to be the basement. On one occasion, a former caretaker had an unsettling encounter with a ghostly presence in the basement. He described the chilling experience of feeling a sudden drop of temperature, hearing whispers, and then witnessing objects moving all on their own. The caretaker, terrified by his encounter, left his job shortly afterwards, convinced that the building was haunted by something beyond explanation. An explanation may be found from a terrible incident which occurred on the night of the 14th of July, 1791 in the house which stood here prior to this building. The house was in the possession of John Ryland, who bought it following Baskerville's death. The priestly riots started that night, ending on the 17th, and the riot as main targets were religious dissenters, most notably the politically and theologically controversial Joseph Priestley. Three looters broke into the wine cellar of Baskerville's home, completely unaware that the house above had been targeted by the mob and was ablaze. They found out too late and were burned alive in the fire. Are they to blame today for the fleeting shadows seen moving swiftly around the current building's basement? and the eerie feeling that comes over those brave enough to be down there alone. I'm now in Victoria Square, or at least as close to Victoria Square as I can get, because it's currently under a load of construction and it's all fenced off. It's a renowned public square situated in the heart of the city. 
Throughout its rich history, the vibrant urban space has evolved into a focal point for social, cultural and political activities, reflecting the city's growth and transformation. The story of Victoria Square begins in the early 19th century, when Birmingham experienced rapid industrialisation. The square was originally named Council House Square, as it surrounded the Council House, which served as the headquarters for the City Council. It was a modest square at the time, with simple gardens and paths. In 1869, a bronze statue of Queen Victoria, created by sculptor Thomas Brock, was erected in the square, and it was subsequently renamed Victoria Square in her honour. As Birmingham continued to flourish, Victoria Square underwent further development enhancements. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, several prominent buildings were constructed around the square, showcasing the architectural prowess of the time. One of the most notable structures is the stunning Birmingham Town Hall, designed by Joseph Hansom and completed in 1834. Its imposing neoclassical facade and grandeur remain a prominent feature of Victoria Square, hosting numerous concerts, events and cultural gatherings. Another significant addition to Victoria Square came in 1885, when the iconic Florentine-style Chamberlain Memorial Fountain was unveiled. Dedicated to Joseph Chamberlain, a prominent local politician and statesman, the fountain is a testament to his contribution to Birmingham. Its intricate design and exquisite craftsmanship make it a captivating centrepiece within the square. Throughout the 20th century, Victoria Square witnessed various transformations to accommodate the evolving needs of the city. The construction of the Rotunda Building in the 1960s, a cylindrical tower that stands as a prominent landmark, added a modern touch to the square skyline. In recent years, Victoria Square has undergone further revitalisation and refurbishment, enhancing its appeal as a public space. The square has been pedestrianised, allowing visitors to explore and enjoy its offerings more freely. Modern features such as fountains and seating areas have been incorporated to create a welcoming and attractive environment for both residents and tourists. Our ghost story here focuses on a building I've already mentioned, and which was once right in the centre of Victoria Square, but was demolished almost 125 years ago. Christ Church occupied the centre of the square from 1805. It was a Regency-style church, and it was a place of worship for the people of Birmingham. Being situated here meant that it had no churchyard, and therefore no external burial plots. It did, however, offer an internal crypt, which was reserved for the city's most prominent citizens upon their passing. This included John Baskerville, as we heard at our previous location. In 1899, a decision was made to demolish the church, and the bodies of the dead held in the crypt had to be moved. They were in every state of decomposition you can imagine. Some were nothing more than a skeleton, and others which had only been interred recently looked almost like they were sleeping, and then there was everything in between. The church was demolished, and the bodies of the deceased occupants on the crypt were loaded on the back of a wagon, and it was pulled by horse through the city, where they were eventually buried in two local cemeteries. Today, a spectral horse and cart is sometimes spotted with its grisly cargo, moving slowly through Victoria Square in the surrounding area. The unmistakable smell of death fills the air. I'm still in Victoria Square and I'm now still outside the Council House. It's a significant landmark with a rich history that spans over a century. It has served as the administrative headquarters for the City Council and has played a vital role in the governance and development of Birmingham. The story of the Council House begins in the late 19th century when the need for a purpose-built facility to house the City Council became apparent. Birmingham, experiencing rapid industrialisation and population growth, required a centralised location to conduct civic affairs and govern the expanding city. 
The construction of the council house commenced in 1874 under the guidance of architect Yeovil Thomason. The design of the building was inspired by a blend of architectural styles, including Renaissance and Baroque influences. The result was a grand and imposing structure that showcased Birmingham's ambition and prosperity. The council house was officially opened on September 4, 1879 by the then Prime Minister, William Ewart Gladstone. The occasion was celebrated with great fanfare, reflecting the city's pride in its new civic headquarters. The building's exterior features intricate stonework, elaborate carvings and ornate decorations symbolising the grandeur and importance of the institution that it housed. The interior of the council house is equally impressive, with stunning halls and chambers that reflect the architectural style of the time. It's adorned with beautiful stained glass windows and elaborate woodwork. The Chamberlain Room, named after Joseph Chamberlain, a renowned Birmingham politician, is another notable space within the building, known for its opulence and historical significance. Over the years, the Council House has been witness to significant events and decisions that have shaped Birmingham's history. It has been the venue for countless Council meetings, where policies were debated, decisions were made, and the city's future was determined. It has also hosted notable figures, including members of the royal family, dignitaries, and renowned public figures further cement its status as a place of importance. In addition to its administrative role, the council house has become a symbol of civic pride and a focal point for public engagement. Its prominent location here in Victoria Square makes it a popular gathering place for protests, rallies and celebrations. The square in front of the building has witnessed countless demonstrations and public events, giving a voice to the people and reflecting the democratic spirit of Birmingham. In recent years, the Council House has undergone renovations and modernisations to ensure its functionality and preserve its historic features. It continues to serve as a centre of local governance, housing the Birmingham City Council and providing a platform for community involvement and decision-making. The Council House stands as a testament to Birmingham's growth, resilience and civic spirit, as well as befitting the status of Birmingham as the second biggest city in the United Kingdom. The Grade 2 listed building, which looks impressive tonight illuminated by the moon above, is haunted by a number of phantoms. The best known of these is former Mayor Joseph Chamberlain, known locally as Brummagen Joe, Brummagen being the local name for Birmingham and the dialect associated with the city. He laid the foundation stone here when the council house was being constructed and he was the first mayor to have an office in the completed building. He insisted on always having freshly cut flowers and his apparition sitting behind his desk, wearing a black velvet coat and red necktie, is seen accompanied by the smell of flowers. An unsubstantiated tale is that a young man who worked here as a local authority officer hanged himself in the entrance hall one night after work when everyone else had left and he was here all alone, only being found the following morning. Little is known about him, we don't even have a name, but it's claim he suffered from depression and simply couldn't go on. His sombre figure is seen hanging at the top of the main staircase and during those quiet times when the building is still and empty, the sound of keys tapping on a keyboard and footsteps wandering the offices are heard, attributed to the suicidal young man. People walking through the entrance hall have been overcome with a deep depression for no apparent reason, while others have been overwhelmed by sadness, even breaking down in tears. Another unsubstantiated claim is that there was once a monastery on this site and that spectral monks have been seen here walking silently looking at the ground, never looking up. Now we turn our attention to another building which has had an important part to play in the history of Birmingham, the Town Hall. 
The town hall is located right here in Victoria Square in the heart of the city and it's a magnificent architectural gem that holds a significant place in the city's history. This iconic building stands as a testament to Birmingham's industrial prosperity, cultural heritage and architectural prowess. The story of the town hall begins in the early 19th century when the city's rapid industrialization created a need for a grand public building that would reflect its newfound wealth and status. The competition was held to design the town hall and the winning entry came from Joseph Hansom, a renowned architect known for his work on the iconic Hansom cab, a kind of horse-drawn carriage. Construction of the Birmingham Town Hall began in 1832 and the building was officially opened on September the 19th, 1834. The grand neoclassical design of the town hall was inspired by Greek and Roman architecture, featuring a majestic colonnaded facade, impressive pediment and a grand entrance hall. The interior of the town hall is equally captivating, boasting a stunning great hall with a magnificent organ, ornate balconies and intricate detailing. The acoustics of the great hall are renowned for their exceptional quality, making it a sought-after venue for musical performance and concerts. Throughout its history, Birmingham Town Hall has hosted a wide range of events and gatherings that have shaped the city's cultural and social landscape. It quickly became the hub of Birmingham's musical scene, attracting renowned performers and orchestras. It was also a venue for public meetings, exhibitions and even political rallies. In 1834, Birmingham Town Hall hosted the historic anti-slavery convention, which played a crucial role in the abolitionist movement. The convention brought together prominent figures, including Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, to advocate for the end of slavery. Over the years, Birmingham Town Hall has undergone several renovations and restorations to preserve its historic features and ensure its continued relevance. These efforts have maintained the building's original splendour while incorporating modern amenities and facilities. Today, Birmingham Town Hall remains a vibrant cultural and civic centre, hosting a diverse range of events from classical concerts to comedy shows and conferences. It stands as a symbol of Birmingham's rich heritage, artistic excellence and architectural legacy. The Town Hall's grandeur and historical significance make it an iconic landmark in the city. Its architectural beauty, cultural contributions and connections to significant events reflect the spirit and evolution of Birmingham. The Town Hall stands as a testament to the city's past achievements, while continuing to inspire and enrich the lives of its residents and visitors. And it's got ghosts. At least four individual spirits who had ties to the building and life are said to remain here in death. Two of these spirits never even had a chance to step inside the Town Hall, as they died during its construction. John Heap and William Badger died in 1833. They were lifting steel beams onto the roof via an 80-foot tower. The tower collapsed, landing on the two men, crushing them. One died immediately, and the other died shortly afterwards in hospital. Staff working at the town hall in the early evening have heard the sounds of something impossibly loud crashing onto the ground. This is followed by moans and screams. Others have seen two dark shadows moving swiftly through the building. Electric lights flicker in the rooms when the shadows are present. And this stops when they vanish. A gentleman wearing Victorian dress and smoking a pipe is seen walking along the corridors and sitting in the empty hall. No one knows who he is or why he appears to haunt the town hall, but on one occasion a member of staff was approached by him. He saw the man in strange clothes. The man looked at him. They made eye contact. Then the man approached the member of staff. Just as the town hall employee was about to ask if he could help, 
the man simply dissolved before his very eyes. The most famous and best known of all of the spooks associated with the building is the author Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens was at Birmingham Town Hall on Boxing Day 1853 when he gave the first public reading anywhere of his Christmas Carol, right here to an audience of 2,000 eager brummies. His ghost has supposedly been seen here ever since, sitting in this very room where he delivered his reading 170 years ago. We're now on one of the busiest streets in Birmingham, especially for those looking for somewhere to sink a few pints or a fancy cocktail, or maybe grab a bite to eat. This Temple Street has a lot of drinking establishments and restaurants, and it's one of these pubs that we're going to turn our attention to in the next stop on our ghost walk, the Trocadero. Number 17 Temple Street is today the popular Trocadero pub, with its frontage, a dazzling display of glazed tiles and terracotta. It was constructed in 1846 as a fire engine house for the Norwich Union Insurance Company to the designs of architect Charles Avery. In 1883, it was remodelled and opened as the Bodega Wine Bar. And in 1912 it became the Trocadero, at which point it was given its colourful tiled front. The Trocadero is home to a spirit, and I'm not talking about the gins, whiskies and vodkas behind the bar. I'm talking about the ghost of Henry Skinner, who was haunted at the Trocadero since the late 19th century. Henry was the owner of the pub when it was the Bodega in the 1890s, and was famously a tight-fisted skinflint. The bar was incredibly popular, and was making a lot of money but Henry would do anything to save money where he could. One fateful night, he got into an argument with a barman over wages, and Henry would not back down, as he didn't want to pay a penny more than he had to for anything. This would backfire spectacularly, though, when the angry employee pulled a gun and shot Henry dead. The bodega is a distant memory, but Henry still haunts this building he once owned. He's blamed for drinks being knocked over, glasses moving all on their own, Lights going on and off, and if the till is short a pound or two, Henry is no doubt the culprit. You may notice it's now noticeably quieter compared to when I was outside the Trocadero on Temple Street, right in the heart of the city. Because I'm now a little way outside of the city centre, I'm on Steelhouse Lane, and I'm standing outside of the West Midlands Police Museum. The museum offers a fascinating glimpse at the rich history and heritage of the police force in the West Midlands region. This unique museum tells the story of law enforcement in the area. It features a diverse range of exhibits that cover various aspects of policing, from uniforms and equipment to crime prevention and investigation techniques. Visitors can explore displays that highlight the changing face of law enforcement, from the early days of the constabulary to the modern challenges faced by the force. One of the notable features of this museum is its collection of historical artefacts. These include vintage police uniforms, helmets and badges, which provide a visual representation of the change in styles and standards of the police force over the years. The museum also showcases historical records, photographs and documents that offer insight into notable cases, events and the life of police officers. The history of the West Midlands Police Museum can be traced back to the establishment of the West Midlands Police Force itself. The force was formed in 1974 following the amalgamation of several local police forces including Birmingham City Police, Wolverhampton Borough Police and Coventry City Police. The consolidation led to the creation of a centralised police museum to preserve and showcase the collective history of these forces. But it's the building that we're more interested here, rather than the museum itself, because the museum is housed within a former police station, which opened in 1933 
on the site of a previous Victorian police station. The custody block, dating from 1892, survived the demolition and would serve the new building. For over 80 years, Steelhouse Lane Police Station served the city, and this was to end when a decision was announced in March 2013 to close Steelhouse Lane, along with stations in Edgebaston and Aston, in a series of cost-cut measures. The building finally closed its doors as a police station in 2016, and was transformed into the museum that it is today. During its time as a functional police station, this building housed some of the UK's most dangerous, despicable, vile and disturbing criminals. One former inmate was sadistic serial killer Fred West. He was held at Steelhouse Lane before he was moved to Birmingham Prison, charged with 12 murders. For anyone listening, perhaps outside of the UK, who is fortunate enough to not know who Fred West is, I implore you to not even Google him. He committed the worst imaginable crimes with his wife Rose, who herself is in prison now, serving a life sentence after being found guilty of 10 murders, nine of them with Fred, the other being the murder of her own daughter, Heather. She was just 16 years old. Their Wikipedia page will give you nightmares. Fred West took the coward's way out when he was found hanged in his cell on New Year's Day 1995 before he could face trial. The prison also housed members of the infamous Peaky Blinders gang, who inspired the smash hit BBC television drama of the same name. The museum is popular today with paranormal investigators and for good reason. The building unsettles and unnerves even the most hardened ghost hunter. The prison's winding corridors and cells feel claustrophobic and unwelcoming. Footsteps of heavy boots are heard pacing the empty cells and the jangling of keys are heard. Doors slam open and closed and lights turn themselves on and off, often on command. Dark shadowy figures are seen here, all too often for it to be dismissible as imagination. Visitors have claimed to be attacked by the ghosts of the dead killers who once were held here. People have felt themselves being scratched and when they've looked under the clothes, claw marks down their back. People have been bitten, they've been pushed and they've been punched. This is not a place for the faint of heart. We're now outside the Red Lion pub on Warstone Lane, in the heart of Birmingham's Jewellery Quarter. Birmingham's Jewellery Quarter is known for its rich history of craftsmanship and creativity, but like any district, it also has a darker side that is intertwined with its past. While the Jewellery Quarter may be renowned for its jewellery production and artisanal skill, it has also experienced periods of hardship, crime and even tragedy throughout its history. One of the darkest chapters in the history of the Jewellery Quarter is linked to the harsh working conditions that many craftsmen and apprentices endured during the Industrial Revolution. In the 19th century, workers in the jewellery trade often faced long hours, low wages and dangerous working conditions. The cramped and poorly ventilated workshops were a breeding ground for illnesses and accidents. Additionally, child labour was prevalent. With young apprentices subject to gruelling labour and inadequate education, Another dark aspect of the Jewellery Quarter's history is its association with the illicit trade of stolen goods. Due to its concentration of valuable jewellery and precious metals, the area became an attractive target for thieves and organised crime. Over the years, the district witnessed numerous incidents of theft, burglary and smuggling. Criminal gangs would exploit the intricate networks of narrow streets and alleyways, making it difficult for law enforcement to apprehend them. Moreover, the Jewellery Quarter has also experienced a share of tragic events. 
One such event occurred during World War II, when the district was heavily bombed during the Birmingham Blitz. The devastating air raids resulted in the destruction of many buildings, including jewellery workshops and businesses. The bombings caused loss of life, injuries, and the irreparable damage of precious heritage. In recent decades, the Jewellery Quarter has undergone significant regeneration efforts to revitalise the area and preserve its historical character. While these efforts have successfully transformed the district into a thriving destination, it's important to acknowledge and remember the darker aspects of its past. The Red Lion Pub has served locals and visitors alike for many years and was established during the 18th century, making it one of the oldest pubs in the area. The name Red Lion is a common one for pubs throughout the UK, with many establishments adopting this name due to its association with strength, courage and loyalty. The Red Lion has preserved many of its original features and its charm. The interior boasts wooden beams, low ceilings and a cosy atmosphere, creating a nostalgic ambience that harkens back to its past. The pub's decor often reflects Birmingham's local heritage, with memorabilia, photographs and artefacts adorning the walls, telling the stories of the city's history. The cause of the paranormal occurrences here are unknown, but drinkers have adamantly claimed to see the ghost of a woman wearing an elegant Victorian-era dress. She never speaks, but she is seen in the bar area standing perfectly still before simply fading away. There are claims that in the early days of the Red Lion, a man was crushed to death in the cellar by a beer barrel, and his screams and cries are heard emanating from the lower reaches of the pub today. In stark contrast, playful giggling is heard, the source of which can never be identified. We remain on Warston Lane for the final stop of our ghost walk of Birmingham. I am now standing outside of Warston Lane Cemetery. I'd have loved to gone inside and told you all about it whilst in this historic graveyard. But sadly it closes daily at four in the afternoon. This is a historical burial ground that holds a significant place in the city's history. Established in 1848, this cemetery has become a peaceful and cherished final resting place for many individuals, reflecting the evolution of burial practices and memorialisation in the Victorian era. The history of Warston Lane Cemetery begins with the rapid growth of Birmingham during the Industrial Revolution. As the population expanded, existing burial grounds in the city became overcrowded, requiring the creation of new cemeteries to meet the growing demand. In response to this need, Warston Lane Cemetery was established. The Eight Acre Cemetery was designed by architect Charles Edge, who sought to create a tranquil and picturesque space for the interment of the deceased. It was an unusual design to maximise the space by containing two levels of catacombs, one on top of the other. The cemetery features winding paths, landscape gardens, and an array of grand Victorian tombs and monuments. It's dark now, but I'm looking through the gate, and it really is a spectacle. Feel free to check out the photographs of all of these locations on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod. Despite only being eight acres in size, there's almost a hundred thousand of the city's dead buried here. The cemetery soon had all manner of foul stenches wafting over the area of the city. This was caused by the two levels of catacombs. The smell of the rotten corpses became such a problem that it was discussed at Parliament. One of the notable aspects of Warston Lane Cemetery is its connection to Birmingham's prominent industrial and business families. The cemetery became a final resting place for many influential figures in the city, including entrepreneurs, manufacturers and civic leaders. Their grand memorials and elaborate tombstones reflect their social status and their wealth they amassed during the industrial boom.
Over the years, the cemetery has undergone various expansions and developments to accommodate the increasing number of burials. Additional sections were added, including consecrated areas for different religious denominations, reflecting the diversity of Birmingham's population. Today, Warston Lane Cemetery is no longer open to new burials, but there is another cemetery in the city's jewellery quarter, Key Hill Cemetery, open to those wishing to be laid to rest in this area of the city. Anyone visiting will notice serene atmosphere, diverse range of grave styles and designs, and rich historical connections. These help make it an important cultural and heritage asset for Birmingham. The cemetery offers a tranquil space for reflection, remembrance and contemplation, inviting visitors to explore its path, appreciate its beauty, and connect with the residents of the city's past. Warston Lane Cemetery is not only a place of tranquility and remembrance, but it's a site that has gained a reputation for alleged paranormal activity. Over the years, numerous reports of ghostly encounters and unexplained phenomena have captured the imagination of locals and visitors alike, adding an air of mystery to this historic cemetery. Among the reported ghostly sightings in the cemetery is a spectral figure known as the Veiled Lady. According to popular folklore, this ethereal apparition is said to appear near the cemetery gates, dressed in a flowing white gown and wearing a delicate, translucent veil. Witnesses have described her as gliding silently through the graveyard, emanating an otherworldly presence. A grey vision of a young lady in 1930s clothing has been seen walking through many solid objects, such as walls and parked cars. She smells of almonds, which has led to the suggestion that she committed suicide by swallowing cyanide, while others have claimed it's more likely she was killed by accident due to the potassium cyanide used in the gold and silver plating factories in this area of the city. A young man wearing a trench coat has been seen several times near the catacombs. Visitors claim to have seen shadowy figures moving between the tombstones, hearing whispers of voices from unseen sources, and feeling sudden unexplained drops in temperature or unexplained sensations of being watched. Some individuals have even reported capturing inexplicable orbs or anomalies in their photographs, further fueling the speculation about paranormal activity in the cemetery. And with that, that brings our Ghost Walk of Birmingham to a close. I hope you've enjoyed it, and should you visit this fine city, or perhaps be fortunate enough to call Birmingham your home, be on guard, as there are ghosts and ghouls to be found at every turn. Tonight, we've barely scratched the surface. Thank you so much for joining me for this very special episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost walk of Birmingham. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all for you in a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. If you'd like to get early access to episodes, as well as access to exclusive episodes where you can join me in an actual paranormal investigation, and hear the audio as it happened, you can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint and there's 11 episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, 
but you can get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, as well as join me on an actual paranormal investigation via live stream. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast episode description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time, we're heading back to Ireland and to a castle that's origins are unclear, but it was most likely built in around 1250. There are a huge number of paranormal entities set to call this castle home, which includes two little girls called Emily and Charlotte, seen running and playing throughout the castle. A red lady who was imprisoned here. She was raped and impregnated, and her baby was killed, and then she took her own life. And a creature known only as It, which is the size of a large dog with a rotten, decaying face. The castle itself claims to be the world's most haunted castle, but just how haunted is it? Let's find out together next week, when we visit Leap Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? <laughs>